Section 20 of the Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler, edited by Henry Festing Jones. 16. Written Sketches, Part 1. Literary Sketchbooks. The true writer will stop everywhere and anywhere to put down his notes as the true painter will stop everywhere and anywhere to sketch i do not see why an author should not have the sale of literary sketches each one short slight and capable of being framed and glazed in small compass they would make excellent library decorations and ought to fetch as much as an artist's sketches they might be cut up in suitable lots if the fashion were once set and many a man might be making provision for his family at odd times with his notes as an artist does with his sketches london if i were asked what part of london i was most identified with after clifford's inn itself i should say fetter lane every part of it just by the record office is one of the places where I'm especially prone to get ideas. So also was the other end about the butcher's shop near Hoban. The reason in both cases is the same, namely that I have about had time to settle down to reflection after leaving on the one hand my rooms in Clifford's Inn and on the other Jones's rooms in Barnard's Inn, where I usually spend the evening. The subject which has occupied my mind during the day, being approached anew after an interval and a shake, some fresh ideas in connection with it often strikes me. But long before I knew Jones, Fetter Lane was always a street which I was more in than perhaps any other in London. Leather Lane, the road through Lincoln's Inn Fields to the Museum, the Embankment, Fleet Street, the Strand and Charing Cross come next. A Clifford's Inn euphemism. People, when they want to get rid of their cats and do not like killing them, bring them to the garden of Clifford's Inn, drop them there and go away. In spite of all that is said about cats being able to find their way so wonderfully, they seldom do find it, and once in Clifford's Inn the cat generally remains there. The technical word among the laundresses in the inn for this is losing a cat poor thing poor thing said one old woman to me a few days ago it's got no fur on its head at all and no doubt that's why the people she lived with lost her london trees they are making a great outcry about the ventilators on the thames embankment just as they made a great outcry about the griffin in fleet street Footnote, sea alps and sanctuaries introduction end of footnote they say the ventilators have spoiled the thames embankment they do not spoil it half so much as the statues do indeed i do not see that they spoil it at all the trees that are planted everywhere are or will be a more serious nuisance trees are all very well where there is plenty of room otherwise they are a mistake they keep in the moisture, exclude light and air, and their roots disturb foundations. 
most of our London squares would look much better if the trees were thinned. I should like to cut down all the plain trees in the garden of Clifford's Inn and leave only the others. What I said to the milkman. One afternoon I heard a knock at the door and found it was the milkman. Mrs. Doncaster, his laundress, was not there, so I took the milk in myself. The milkman is a very nice man, and by way of making himself pleasant, said rather complainingly that the weather kept very dry. I looked at him significantly and said, Ah, yes, of course, for your business you must find it very inconvenient, and laughed. He saw he had been caught and laughed too. It was a very old joke, but he had not expected it at that particular moment, and on the top of such an innocent remark. The return of the Jews to Palestine. A man called on me last week and proposed gravely that I should write a book upon an idea which had occurred to a friend of his, a Jew living in New Bond Street. It was a plan requiring the cooperation of a brilliant writer, and that was why he had come to me. If only I would help, the return of the Jews to Palestine would be rendered certain and easy. There was no trouble about the poor Jews. He knew how he could get them back at any time. The difficulty lay with the Rothschilds, the Oppenheims, and such. With my assistance, however, the thing could be done. I am afraid I was rude enough to decline to go into the scheme on the ground that I did not care tuppence whether the Rothschilds and Oppenheims went back to Palestine or not. This was felt to be an obstacle, but then he began to try and make me care, whereupon, of course, I had to get rid of him. 1883 The Great Bear's Barley Water Last night... Jones was walking down with me from Staple Inn to Clifford's Inn about ten o'clock, and we saw the great bear standing upright on the tip of his tail, which was coming out of a chimney-pot. Jones said it wanted attending to. I said yes, but to attend to it properly we ought to sit up with it all night, and if the great bear thinks that I am going to sit by his bedside and give him a spoonful of barley water every ten minutes, he will find himself much mistaken. 1892 The Cock Tavern I went into Fleet Street one Sunday morning last November, 1882, with my camera Lucida to see whether I should like to make a sketch of the gap made by the demolition of the Cock Tavern. It was rather pretty, with an old roof or two behind, and scaffolding about, and torn paper hanging to an exposed party wall, and old fireplaces and so on. But it was not very much out of the way. Still, I would have taken it if it had not been the cock. I thought of all the trash that has been written about it, and of Tennyson's plump head waiter, who, by the way, used to swear that he did not know Tennyson, and that Tennyson never did resort to the cock. And I said to myself, No, you may go. I will put out no hand to save you. Myself in Dowie's shop. I always buy ready-made boots, and insist on taking those which the shopman says are much too large for me. By this means I keep free from corns. 
but I have a great deal of trouble generally with the shopman. I had got on a pair once which I thought would do, and the shopman said for the third or fourth time, but really, sir, these boots are much too large for you. I turned to him and said rather sternly, Now, you made that remark before. There was nothing in it, but all at once I became aware that I was being watched and looking up saw a middle-aged gentleman eyeing the whole proceedings with much amusement. He was quite polite, but he was obviously exceedingly amused. I can hardly tell why, nor why I should put such a trifle down, but somehow or other an impression was made upon me by the affair quite out of proportion to that usually produced by so small a matter. My dentist. Mr. Forsyth had been stopping a tooth for me, and then talked a little, as he generally does, and asked me if I knew a certain distinguished literary man, or rather journalist. I said no, and that I did not want to know him. The paper edited by the gentleman in question was not to my taste. I was a literary Ishmael, and preferred to remain so. It was my role. It seems to me, I continued, that if a man will only be careful not to write about things that he does not understand, if he will use a toothpick freely and a spirit twice a day and come to you again in October, he will get on very well without knowing any of the big wigs. The toothpick freely and the spirit twice a day being tags of Mr. Forsyth's, he laughed. Ferber the violin maker. From what my cousin, Reginald E. Worsley, and Gurgang both tell me, I am sure that Ferber is one of the best men we have. My cousin did not like to send Hyam to him for a violin. He did not think him worthy to have one. Ferber does not want you to buy a violin unless you can appreciate it when you have it. My cousin says of him, he is generally a little tight on a Saturday afternoon. He always speaks the truth, but on Saturday afternoons it comes pouring out more. His joints, that is, the joints of the violins he makes, are the closest and neatest that were ever made. He always speaks of the corners of a fiddle. Harweiss would call them the points. Harweiss calls it the neck of a fiddle, Ferber always the handle. My cousin says, he would like to take his violins to bed with him. Speaking of Strad violins, Ferber said, rough, rough linings, but they look as if they grew together. One day my cousin called and Ferber, on opening the door, before saying how do you do or any word of greeting, said very quietly, the dog is dead. My cousin, having said what he thought sufficient, took up a violin and played a few notes, Ferber evidently did not like it. Rose, the dog, was still unburied. She was laid out in that very room. My cousin stopped. Then Mrs. Ferber came in. R.E.W. I'm very sorry, Mrs. Ferber, to hear about Rose. Mrs. F. Well, yes, sir. But I suppose it is all for the best. R.E.W. I'm afraid you will miss her a great deal, Mrs. F. No doubt we shall, sir, but you see she's only gone a little while before us. Harry W. Oh, Mrs. Ferber, I hope a good long while. Mrs. F. Brightening. Well, yes, sir. I don't want to go just yet. 
though Mr. Ferber does say it is a happy thing to die. My cousin says that Ferber hardly knows anyone by their real name. He identifies them by some nickname in connection with the fiddles they buy from him, or get him to repair, or by some personal peculiarity. There is one man, said my cousin, whom he calls Diaphragm, because he wanted a fiddle made with what he called a diaphragm in it. He knows Dando and Curridus and Jenny Lind, but hardly anyone else. Who is Dando? said I. Why, Dando? Not no Dando. He was George the Fourth's music master, and is now one of the oldest members of the profession. Window cleaning in the British Museum reading room. Once a year or so, the figures on the Assyrian bas-reliefs break adrift and may be seen with their scaling ladders and all cleaning the outside of the windows in the dome of the reading room. It is very pretty to watch them, and they would photograph beautifully. If I live to see them do it again, I must certainly snapshot them. You can see them smoking and sparring, and this year they have left a little hole in the window above the clock. The electric light in its infancy. I heard a woman in a bus boring her lover about the electric light. She wanted to know this and that, and the poor lover was helpless. Then she said she wanted to know how it was regulated. At last she settled down by saying that she knew it was in its infancy. The word infancy seemed to have a soothing effect upon her, for she said no more but leaning her head against her lover's shoulder, composed herself to slumber. Fire. I was at one the other night and heard a man say, that corner stack is alight now quite nicely. People's sympathies seem generally to be with the fire, so long as no one is in danger of being burnt. Adam and Eve. A little boy and a little girl were looking at a picture of Adam and Eve. Which is Adam and which is Eve? said one. I do not know, said the other, but I could tell if they had their clothes on. Does Mamma know? A father was telling his eldest daughter, aged about six, that she had a little sister, and was explaining to her how nice it all was. The child said it was delightful, and added, Does Mamma know? Let's go and tell her. Mr. Darwin in the Zoological Gardens. Frank Darwin told me his father was once standing near the hippopotamus cage when a little boy and girl, aged four or five, came up. The hippopotamus shut his eyes for a minute. That bird's dead, said the little girl. Come along. Tabush. Gauguin told me that Berg, an impulsive Swede whom he had known in Lauren's studio in Paris, and who painted very well, came to London and was taken by an artist friend, Henry Scott Tuke, A.R.A., to the National Gallery, where he became very enthusiastic about the Terbosch. They then went for a walk, and in Kensington Gore, near one of the entrances to Hyde Park or Kensington Gardens, there was an old Irish apple woman sitting with her feet in a basket, smoking a pipe and selling oranges. Oranges to a penny, sir, said the old woman in a general way. 
and Berg, turning to her and throwing out his hands appealingly, said, Oh, madame, avez-vous vu les terbouches? Allez voir les terbouches. He felt that such a big note had been left out of the life of anyone who had not seen them. At Doctor's Commons A woman once stopped me at the entrance to Doctor's Commons and said, If you please, sir, can you tell me, is this the place that I came to before? Not knowing where she'd been before, I could not tell her. The Sack of Khartoum as I was getting out of a bus, the conductor said to me in a confidential tone, I say, what does that mean, sack of Khartoum? What does sack of Khartoum mean? It means, said I, that they've taken Khartoum and played hell with it all round. He understood that and thanked me, whereon we parted. Miss Olongi Ballard, a fellow art student with Butler at Heatherley's, told me that an old governess some twenty years since was teaching some girls modern geography. One of them did not know the name Missolonghi. The old lady wrung her hands. Why, me dear, she exclaimed, when I was your age, I could never hear the name mentioned without bursting into tears. I should perhaps add that Byron died there. Memnon I saw the driver of the Hampstead bus once near St. Giles's church, an old, fat, red-faced man sitting bolt upright at the top of his bus in a driving storm of snow, fast asleep with a huge waterproof over his greatcoat, which descended with sweeping lines onto a tarpaulin. All this rose out of a cloud of steam from the horses. He had a short clay pipe in his mouth, but for the moment he looked just like Memnon. Mansi the model. They had promised him sittings at the Royal Academy and then refused him on the ground that his legs were too hairy. He complained to Gauguin. Why, said he, I sat at the Slade School for the figure only last week and there were five ladies, but not one of them told me my legs were too hairy. A sailor boy and some chickens. A pretty girl in the train had some chirping chickens about ten days old in a box labelled German egg powders, one packet equal to six eggs. A sailor boy got in at Basingstoke, a quiet reserved youth, well behaved and unusually good looking. By and by the chickens were taken out of the box and fed with biscuit on the carriage seat. This thawed the boy who though he fought against it for some time, yielded to irresistible fascination and said, What are they? Chickens, said the girl. Will they grow bigger? Yes. Then, the boy said with an expression of infinite wonder, And did you hatch them from they powders? We all laughed till the boy blushed and I was very sorry for him. If we had said they had been hatched from the powders, he would have certainly believed us. Gauguin, the Japanese gentleman, and the dead dog. Gauguin was one day going down Cleveland Street and saw an old, lean, careworn man crying over the body of his dog. 
which had been just run over and killed by the old man's own cart. I have no doubt it was the dog's fault, for the man was in great distress. As for the dog, there it lay all swelled and livid where the wheel had gone over it, its eyes protruded from their sockets, and its tongue lolled out, but it was dead. The old man gazed on it, helplessly weeping for some time, and then got a large piece of brown paper in which he wrapped up the body of his favourite. He tied it neatly with a piece of string, and, placing it in his cart, went homeward with a heavy heart. The day was dull, the gutters were full of cabbage stalks, and the air resounded with the cry of costermongers. On this, a Japanese gentleman who had watched the scene lifted up his voice and made the bystanders a set oration. He was very yellow, had long black hair, gold spectacles and a top hat. He was a typical Japanese, but he spoke English perfectly. He said, The scene they had all just witnessed was a very sad one, and that it ought not to be passed over entirely without comment. He explained that it was very nice of the good old man to be so sorry about his dog, and to be so careful of its remains, and that he and all the bystanders must sympathise with him in his grief and as the expression of their sympathy, both with the man and with the poor dog, he had thought fit with all respect to make them his present speech. I have not got the man's words, but Gauguin said they were like a Japanese drawing, that is to say wonderfully charming and showing great knowledge, but not done in the least after the manner in which a European would do them. The bystanders stood open-mouthed and could make nothing of it, but they liked it, and the Japanese gentleman liked addressing them. When he went off and went away, they followed him with their eyes, speechless. St. Pancras Bells Gauguin lives at 164 Euston Road, just opposite St. Pancras Church, and the bells play doleful hymn tunes opposite his window, which worries him. My St. Dunstan's bells near Clifford's Inn play doleful hymn tunes which enter in at my window. I not only do not dislike them, but rather like them. They are so silly, and the bells are out of tune. I never yet was annoyed by either bells or street music, except when a loud piano organ strikes up outside the public house opposite my bedroom window after I'm in bed and when I'm just going to sleep. However, Jones was at Gauguin's one summer evening, and the bells struck up their dingy old burden as usual. The tonic bell on which the tune concluded was the most stuffy and out of tune. Gauguin said it was like the smell of a bug. At Ainsford. I saw a man painting there the other day, but passed his work without looking at it and sat down to sketch some hundred yards off. In course of time, he came strolling round to see what I was doing, and I, not knowing but what he might paint much better than I, was apologetic and said I was not a painter by profession. What are you? said he. I said I was a writer. Dear me, said he, why, that's my line. I'm a writer. I laughed and said I hoped he made it pay better than I did. He said it paid very well, and asked me where I lived and in what neighbourhood my connection lay. I said I had no connection, but only wrote books. Oh, I see, 
You mean you are an author. I'm not an author. I didn't mean that. I paint people's names up over their shops, and that's what we call being a writer. There isn't a touch on my work as good as any touch on yours. I was gratified by so much modesty, and on my way back to dinner called to see his work. I'm afraid he was not far wrong. It was awful. Omne ignotum pro magnifico holds with painters, perhaps, more than elsewhere. We never see a man sketching or even carrying a paint-box without rushing to the conclusion that he can paint very well. There is no cheaper way of getting a reputation than that of going about with easel, paint-box, etc. Provided one can ensure one's work not being seen, and the more traps one carries, the cleverer people think one. End of section 20